Hey everyone, it's Hala, host of Yap, a young and profiting podcast, a number one self-improvement podcast across all apps and a place for you to listen, learn, and profit. I've interviewed the likes of Matthew McConaughey, Seth Godin, Charles Duhigg, Dave Asprey, and so many more bright minds of this world. You're tuning into a live episode of Young and Profiting Podcast on Clubhouse in the Human Behavior Club, the biggest club on the app. And today we're primarily discussing exit strategy and we're joined by Sharon Lecter, financial literacy expert and CEO of Pay Your Family First. Sharon is also the New York Times bestselling author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad and 14 other Rich Dad books. She's the woman behind the revamped Napoleon Hill Think and Grow Rich series and has advised two U.S. presidents, George W. Bush and Barack Obama, on the topic of financial literacy. Sharon co-authored her latest book alongside Michelle Zeller Tucker, Exit Rich, to help entrepreneurs build their business the right way, as well as fix their existing business so they can exit smart and exit rich. Planning your exit strategy is something we haven't yet covered on Yap, and so I'm very excited to get into this topic. And it's a super important one because according to Forbes, eight out of 10 businesses will not sell, leaving many owners to close their businesses or even worse, file for bankruptcy. And we young and profiters with our own businesses or who are planning to start their own companies eventually don't want to be one of those eight who don't sell. And we'll learn why later on. So here's how today's session will work. I've spent a lot of time reading Sharon's book, Exit Rich and Preparing. And so the first hour will be guided questions primarily by me. But if you do have a relevant question based on what we're talking about at any specific moment during the interview, feel free to raise your hand and then DM me your question. If it makes sense to what we're talking about in the moment, I'll bring you up to ask your question. And I'd love to make this as interactive as possible so long as we can stick to the topic at hand. At the end of the session, We'll dedicate 20 to 30 minutes of Q&A with Sharon, where you can ask her any question that you want. So we're going to be covering a ton today, including how to know when to sell your business, how to assign valuation, how to leverage Sharon and Michelle's six P's to account for added value of a business, how to target potential buyers, and so much more. So without further ado, I'd love to welcome Sharon Lecter to the stage. Hello, Hala. I'm so happy to be with you guys. I appreciate you, the invitation, and excited to have everybody with us. Sharon, it's super great to have you on the show and to be doing this live with you. I'd love to start with a little bit of your career story. You've been in this game for a really long time, nearly three decades in financial education, and you've written over 20 books. You've even been the advisor for two presidents. You are by every definition of the word an expert when it comes to finance. So I'd love to start with how you first became interested in the world of finance and entrepreneurship. Well, it's it's probably not that elegant of a story, quite frankly. I was raised in a very lower middle class home and wanted more, wanted better. And I saw my parents, I grew up in a little house between my mom's beauty shop, my dad's used car lot, and we owned rental properties that had to scrub out between tenants. And I swear I didn't want to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to be a, you know, the, a sophisticated professional. So I was one of the very first women in public accounting and was quickly rising through those ranks. But at the ripe old age of 25, I realized I wasn't in control of my own time, that I was working incredibly long hours. And all of a sudden, my parents looked a lot smarter. And I realized that 
I had been given an incredible education that most people don't get. And that's understanding that instead of exchanging your time for money, which we are taught to do, that we need to invest our time in buying, building, creating income producing assets. And so um, that dawning of recognition came up very early for me. And I started my entrepreneurial career. I started and sold a woman's magazine. I started, I met the inventor of the first talking children's book, helped build that around the world with partners like Disney, Warner Brothers, Sesame Street. And then in 1992, my oldest son went off to college and got into credit card debt his first semester. He came home at Christmas asking us to bail him out, and I was so mad at him, but I was even uh, more ma- angry with myself. And that was the moment, December of 1992, that I promised myself and dedicated the rest of my career to financial literacy, financial education, and entrepreneurship education. And I am still as passionate about it today as I was then. So fast forward a few years, I launched the Rich Dad brand. Um, was there for 10 years, made the decision to leave that company. And that's when I had the call from President Bush. And so I had the honor of serving the two presidents, as you mentioned. And then I also got the call from the Napoleon Hill Foundation, which was a huge honor because I had read Thinking Grow Rich when I was 19. And to be asked to step into the world's largest personal development brand after just having finished building the world's largest personal finance brand was incredibly just awesome. And so I've had four books with a foundation, Three Feet from Gold, Outwitting the Devil, Think and Grow Rich for Women, and Success in Something Greater. And it's just been an incredible relationship. And during that process, I continue to see how many people, they say they want to build a successful business, but they don't do what they need to to make it happen. And so all of my mentoring, all of my teaching, all the experience I've had, So we need to put something in a a tool that can help people understand how to build a successful business. And that's when we partnered with Inc. Magazine to write Exit Rich. And it's just been an incredible journey. And the book itself is just, as my friend Steve Forbes says, a goldmine for entrepreneurs. But I really, at the end of the day, somebody starts a business, you ask them, number one, are you starting your business to work until the day you die? Or are you starting your business to build something successful that will be financially supportive of you and get your time back? Well, everybody says that's what they're building, but very few people do what they need to to make that a reality. Instead, they end up creating a job for themselves, and that's what I'm dedicated to helping people understand what they need to do to create the systems and the foundation of their business so that it truly is an asset that's working for them. And it's not dependent on you being the asset. Oh, I I love that. So you mentioned exit rich, and that's really today's topic. It's all about fixing, growing, and exiting our businesses. So I'd love to hear your experience and background in relation to building, buying, and selling businesses. Well, I think every business, even a piece of real estate, is a business. And that the issue is in real estate, your your profit is on the buy, not necessarily the sell. If you get it right and it has the right cash flow and then you can appreciate over time, you have a double bonus. And I think it's really important for when you start something to understand how you're going to 
get out of it, all right? Um, particularly if you're going to business with someone else, talk about the divorce before you get married to them. And it's really important when we started the Woman's Magazine, it was always when the intent that we would get it to the point where a bigger magazine would want to purchase it. Same thing with Talking Books. We got it to incredible success, and then we had uh, someone else come that could take it to a higher level. When we were building the Rich Dad Company, um, we were publishing the Rich Dad books through my company, Tech Press, a company my husband and I owned. And we had such incredible demand. We had to start making a decision. Do we build a bigger publishing company or do we align with somebody who's already in that market? And so we aligned with Warner Books through a joint venture. So your exit strategy doesn't have to be walking away. Okay, what we did was we exited from the daily grind of getting the books done and partnered with a company that had those systems. And so we were able to focus and concentrate on the things that were really important to us. So you want to, the first thing you want to exit is, is everything that you're doing, because as an entrepreneur, you're the jack of all trades. And you they really have to make sure you have people on your team who are strong where you are weak and be able to delegate so that you can still be the one with your foot on the accelerator, driving and building the business. Totally agree. And I know that's uh, one of the six P's is people, which we'll get into in a bit. But first, I want to get into some introductory material to kind of get everybody warmed up to the topic. And if you guys are new to the room, you are tuning into a live episode of Young and Profiting Podcast. We have Sharon Letcher on the stage. She is the legendary co-author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, as well as so many other accolades. And I'm joined with a bunch of my podcaster and clubhouse influencer friends who, if they have a question, they'll flash their mic so I know to kind of turn it to them. And if you're in the audience and you want to ask a question, feel free to raise your hand and DM me your question. If it's relevant, we'll pull you up as well. So I thought a really good place to start was generational wealth. Generational wealth, I learned from your book, is most often created when a business owner sells his or her business at the right time to the right buyer at the maximum price. So I'd love to kind of understand the relationship between exiting businesses and generational wealth and what typically happens to families when businesses exit poor. Well, that's a, a it's a great question because what happens is very few people actually sell their the business at the price they think they should get. And that's why it's so important to have the right advisors, the right mentors, the right people on your team to help you position your business, to make sure you have all your systems documented, to make sure you, all your agreements are aligned. And that's what we go through in the book, Exit Rich, the things that you need to do to really position yourself to get the highest price. And many businesses never sell because they're not structured appropriately. They haven't done what they need to to really be a separate entity. They might have a separate legal entity, but they haven't done the systems. They haven't created the business so that it doesn't rely on the on the founder. And that's what's so important. And you can create general generational wealth when you have a business that's running and it's going on. With, you don't have to be there. It's continuing to generate revenue. And then you can get it to the point where you can position it and find the right purchaser that gives you that generational wealth is money that you can then reinvest where you want it to be and have it set up as a foundation of wealth for your family and for your children and your grandchildren. And that's generational wealth. Yeah. And I know that when an owner goes out of business, they don't only lose their business assets. A lot of the times they lose their family assets. And um, I think something else that's really scary is that a lot of people are 
looking to sell their business towards the end of their business when when their business is dwindling or their industry is kind of fading out and they're approaching retirement thinking they're going to sell their business, but then it kind of goes all wrong. So can you talk about the problem with not having an exit strategy, especially when you're getting close to retirement age? Well, if you don't have an exit strategy, if you don't focus on something that doesn't come to reality, and what happens a lot of times, and it just makes me sad, they're business owners that expect their children to become part of the company and love it and take over. And it's wonderful when that happens, but a lot of times kids um, don't want to take over the business and you've had this this wish and hope and dream that this business is going to stay in the family and it's shattered and you have, you don't have a plan B. And so that's why it's so important to really think about what the extra strategies could be to support you. Some people start a business and their their plan is to do an IPO. Well, along the way, they have an opportunity to bring in an angel investor and they can make more money by not going public. And so you have to understand what your strategic plan is and be able to adjust it based on what's happening in the economy or within your within the four walls of the business. But is invariably an issue in families. Blood and money is a very difficult subject. And so it's really important for people to be honest and open and clear communication about what their plans are and what they want to create. And that's something that seldom happens in family businesses. And so the expectations, and that's the word, that's the most one of the most dangerous words out there. Your expectations are, are not going to be realized if you're not clearly communicating and having everybody driving the ship in the same direction. Totally. I I totally agree. So I'd love to understand the benefits of going into the business with the end in mind, because typically when everybody starts businesses, all you're concerned about is pleasing your clients, driving sales. A lot of people are just going with the day-to-day motions and never thinking about what their exit strategy is. So why is this actually an important thing to do, especially when you first start your business? Well, those businesses are jobs. They're not really businesses. If you're actually truly building a business, you understand that you want to build the systems that go along with that business so that you can scale, so that you can move into different industries, you can move into different geographic locations because you've established the systems and you're not you're not building a business around personalities. And so a lot of people go into a business and where they are using their expertise. And so their expertise can be in digital marketing. Well, then you have to elevate yourself to becoming an authority and having people that are trained in what you can do so that you can leverage their talent alongside yours in order to scale. You have a system that you've created. Well, that system becomes your intellectual property. And the vast majority of valuation of businesses today is in the intangible assets, intellectual property, things that you develop, online programs, books, systems that you've documented that make you unique. Anything that is the essence of your competitive advantage is intellectual property. And that intangible asset can take you to where you want to be in evaluation in a business. But when you go into a business and you don't think about how you want to exit, then you're just creating a job for yourself because you you want to put a plan into place as to how, as you become more successful, how are you going to be able to leverage that success so that you can get some of your time back? 
100%. It's so true. You just end up being a firefighter worrying about the day-to-day instead of looking at the long-term plan and having an end goal and being able to exit rich like you talk about. In your book, you have a very alarming statistic. You say that 90% of businesses listed for sale will not sell. So I'd love to understand some of the reasons why businesses don't end up selling. Well, there's quite a few reasons. And the one is usually people, it's your baby, right? And so you think it's worth $10 million. And when somebody comes in to look at it, they realize that you don't have all your documents in order. So that drops the price. You, that, uh, that A lot of the systems or a lot of the clients are there because of you as an individual, not because of your business. So the price drops. And so what happens is that you end up seeing that, you know, your business isn't worth $10 million. Nobody's going to pay you more than a couple million for it. And so you choose not to sell. And a lot of times businesses that want to sell are at the end of their business cycle and they have not continued to innovate. As a business owner, you have to continue innovating so that you are always on the cutting edge of your industry. So obsolescence is another reason companies don't sell. Having a mess within the company as it relates to employees and agreements and not having it structured is another reason businesses won't sell. And so the the whole concept of, and it's not just, you know, exit rich is not just selling your business. Exit rich is creating something that can sing and operate without you and so that you have employees in place. And what you're doing is you're exiting rich with your time. You may still own the company, but you've created something that's living beside beyond you and gives you your time back. And so you truly have created the exit. The exit plan can be an exit for you or for selling the business as well, or giving it, as we said, to children or to employees taking over. Those are all ways for you to exit a business. Awesome. So I'd love to understand the flip side. What makes a business attractive for purchase? Well, the same things that make your business available for sale and attractive is is what makes it available to purchase. A lot of times you'll have buyers that are looking to expand in your geographic region. They might be competitors, but they don't have a a footprint where where your business exists. Um, They may have a technology that they want to offer to your clients so they see your database as being a very attractive purchase. They may see that you're a different industry than they are, but what they have developed and what they sell is appropriate and can basically leverage it and scale into your industry. They can see a bottom line revenue that can add to their revenue to get them to where their innate goals are. They can see synergies between the two databases so that they can um, merge the deba- databases and have a larger footprint. And so it, it may very well be that um, is that you have a Hispanic company and they don't have a, a penetration in the Hispanic market, so there gives them the opportunity to spread their 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 distribution. So all of these things are reasons for people to buy. Now some people have found the cash, they have the money, but they're looking for a an ongoing operational company that has that checks the boxes for them in particular industries. And then they'll come in and they'll want to do their due diligence to see if you offer a business that is well run with the right people, with the right legal agreements, with the right um intellectual property protection, then that's something that they can be more interested in and and the multiples will go up in the price that you get for your business. 
Thanks for explaining that. So I'd love to really get into your STGPS exit model. This was a model you had in your book that you co-authored with Michelle Seller Tucker. It's called Exit Rich. And you outline five steps. So the first step is determine your destination or desired sales price. The second step is to know your current location or the value of your company. The third is to identify who your buyers will be. The fourth is to know your time frame. The fifth is to determine your why. So I'd love to begin unpacking step one, the determine your destination. I'd love to understand why it's so important to really understand your desired end game and what your future sale should look like um, at the start. Why is that the first step? Well, you have a vision for your life. You're going to have a vision for your business. And so your destination is you want to work and build it for 10 years and then exit. Do you want this to be something that you build over 20 years? Or maybe you want to do an IPO or maybe you want to get to the point where your your children can take over. So you're going to bring them up within the company. That's really determining where you want to go. And that's that vision and being able to work towards it. Because if you don't have the vision, then you're going to be all loosey-goosey all over the place. So it's really important to understand what where you want to end up. And sometimes that changes and adjusts. Certainly COVID had a, <laughs> impacted a lot of people that were business owners. But it's really important for you to have that strategic plan because that means you're serious about building an asset. Your business is an asset. It's a separate legal entity from you. And therefore, you need to understand what what's the vision of where that entity is going to go. Couldn't agree more. And next, I want to talk about valuation because this is a topic that I get a lot of questions about. And a lot of people that listen to my podcast want to learn more about how to evaluate a company. So let's spend a lot of time on this. First things first, what is the industry standard way to price a business or to assign a valuation to a business? That depends on your industry and that depends on the purchaser. Because you can have a strategic buyer that's probably willing to pay a little higher uh, value for your business. You can have a competitor that wants you to go away. So they're going to have the valuation. And you can value your company. There's different valuation models. There's your book value. There's the, the intrinsic value. There's a present value. There's the, the discounted cash flow based on your, your revenue models. So all of those things determine what your industry looks for. So you want to see what comparable companies within your industry are being sold for and what valuation methods are used for those. Got it. So I've always heard that it's, it's three to four times the amount of EBITDA. Does that actually vary by industry? Yes, it does. I mean, Brandon Dawson, part of Cardone Ventures, sold his business, I think, 71 times EBITDA. So you have all of it. It depends on so many different factors. Obviously, sometimes the purchase price is based on sales, top line revenue. Sometimes people have no income whatsoever. The money's lo- the company's losing money, and yet the value is in the billions of dollars because of the database and the technology. And so a lot of the the fast and, and hard rules are flowing out the window based on the current market that we're in. 
Yeah. And I know there's so many different aspects to valuation. And that's why I want to spend so much time on this topic. So let's talk about the intangible ways that you can assign valuation. What are some of the intangibles that might not be so obvious when it comes to valuation? Well, the biggest one, if you think about uh, 40 years ago, Fortune 500 companies were 85% valued in bricks and mortar, 15% intangible. Today is completely reversed. In fact, closer to 90% of the valuation is intangible, 10% bricks and mortar of Fortune 500 companies. And that's what really has allowed us to level the playing field and compete against the big guys because it's really important to understand that if you think about Uber, one of the largest transportation companies, owns no cars. Airbnb, one of the largest hospitality companies, owns no hotels. And so the the, the value of their, their companies, which are in the billions of dollars, is from the systems that they have, the technology, and the market share. You know, VRBO, Airbnb, incredible market share, and it continues to grow, but their value is totally intangible. Um, If you have a new technology and you have patents, patents are tremendous intangible valuation, copyrights, trademarks, your reputation, your goodwill. You heard the term goodwill. Well, that's your reputation within the industry. Your competitive advantage can be a huge value piece in your determination of the intangible value of your business. Um, your database. So many people today, and I'm going to, most of the people on on this call, you have a lot of, you get really excited because of the number of followers we have on Clubhouse, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and that's fantastic. But you don't own those names. So what inherently important for you to invite them home, to entice them to come into your database, because many times companies will sell simply because of the database and the footprint that you have within your customer base is highly attractive to other companies. And so you have to, part of that valuation is understanding who your potential customers can be and to make sure you position yourself to be as attractive as possible. Let's hold that thought and take a quick break with our sponsors. Young and profiters, they may call me the podcast princess, but I'm also the LinkedIn queen. I've been a LinkedIn influencer for six years now, and I teach one of the most popular courses about LinkedIn. And I love to teach sales on LinkedIn because when it comes to B2B sales, LinkedIn has got that on lock. LinkedIn is where all the decision makers are hanging out. There are 180 million senior level decision makers on LinkedIn and 10 million C-suite decision makers. These people are on LinkedIn and they're in the mode to buy. They're using LinkedIn for their buying journey to research vendors or sales reps that they might work with, to look up how to solve their problems, to learn from industry thought leaders. They're in the mode to buy, whereas on other platforms, they're in the mode to be entertained. You want to get them in the right mindset. You want to cut through the noise with LinkedIn ads. In fact, 79% of B2B marketers rate LinkedIn as their top channel for paid media. And LinkedIn has the best targeting because they've got all these different inputs. People are putting their resume basically up on there. And so there's so many keywords that they can use to target the right decision makers so they can hear about how you solve their problems. And I've got a special gift for all you young and profiters who want to try LinkedIn ads. You can get a $100 credit. LinkedIn was super generous. If you want to make B2B marketing everything it can be and get a $100 credit on your next campaign, go to linkedin.com slash yap, 
Y-A-P. Again, if you want to claim your credit, go to linkedin.com slash yap. Terms and conditions apply. Young and profiters, Yap Media is growing so fast. I have 10 open roles just this month. In the past, it would take me so long to find hires. I have to go on all these different job sites. I have to create my own skills assessments. That's why I let Indeed do a lot of this heavy lifting for me. Indeed is the powerful hiring platform where I can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Indeed has things like skills assessments, where when we have specific roles, we can find an assessment that matches that role and we can make sure they have the skills that we need. Then I can focus on culture fit. I can make sure they're scrappy enough and are obsessed with excellence and do all the things that we need to do for them to fit in at YAP. And Indeed streamlines hiring with powerful tools like Instant Match. An Instant Match basically matches you with candidates as soon as you put up a job post with people who are qualified right away. It's instant. And the best part is it gets better as you use it. So now when I use Indeed, especially when I'm hiring for similar roles, I get people right away where they know that I'm going to like the candidates because they can see what my preferences were in the past. It gets better as you use it. According to US Indeed data, the moment Indeed sponsors a job, over 80% of employers get candidates whose resumes are a perfect match for the position. It's like waving a magic wand that gets better as you use it. So I love using Indeed. We've found a lot of our A players on there. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide who count on Indeed to hire their next superstar like we do at Yap Media. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash profiting. Offer is good for a limited time. Claim your $75 sponsored job credit at indeed.com slash profiting. Again, that's indeed.com slash profiting. And support the show by saying you heard about it on Young and Profiting Podcast. Again, it's indeed.com slash profiting to get your $75 credit. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Similar to what you're talking about now, but but slightly different is demonstrative assets. So these are things that tend to serve as evidence to the underlying value of otherwise intangible assets. So is what you were just describing considered demonstrative assets or is that something different? Well, for instance, if you have patents, copyrights, trademarks, those are definitive property that shows that you have ownership within an industry. And that that goes a long way for a potential buyer that shows that you've taken the, the necessary steps to protect your innovation, to protect your position, to protect your competitive advantage. And so that's, a, the, that's one of the first thing people want. I want to see what, you know, what intellectual property do you have? That happens to be one of my superpowers. I help people understand the value of intellectual property, not just to create it, but to protect it and then to leverage it. You can potentially, I grew the Rich Dad organization around the world based on licensing. Instead of, I had 5,000 people working for me, but only 17 on my payroll because I was working with companies, Warner Books, Time Life. And so that type of valuation really spikes because you're using the, the leverage of other people's money, other people's time, other people's resources. And those license agreements are exceptionally valuable. Okay, so my follow-up question to that is, how do we know when we have something that needs to be patented or a registered trademark? How do, what are the signs that say that we should do that? 
If it's something that is uniquely yours, that you, you solved a problem, or you've you know, any time you solve a problem, you have created intellectual property. Anytime you create a document, that's uh, is copyrighted. You have the opportunity to protect those things. But it's a, one of the greatest responses to your question is having the right mentor, having the right people on your team. We work with all of our business owners that we mentor and help them identify their intellectual property, help them identify how they can best protect it and then leverage it. Awesome. So my next question is really about branding. So I'm a marketer. I run a marketing agency called Yap Media. And I get a lot of clients who own these big companies. They're nearing IPO or planning to sell their businesses. And they come to me to level up their CEO's personal brand so they can exit at a higher valuation. So I'd love to understand the relationship between really good branding and market recognition in relation to having a higher valuation. Well, certainly you want that recognition as it's just good PR. But at the same time, when you have not just an industry leading company, but an industry leading authority um, behind that company, you, you tend to have a little bit more opportunity for public exposure. A lot of times those CEOs are trying to get their personal brand up because they do plan to exit and they want to know what the next chapter is. And they've been spending all of their time devoted to raising the brand of the company. And then all of a sudden they realize what's next for me. You know, I'm only known by having led this company. And so a lot of times they, they, they'll come to you to want to um, elevate their personal brand, not so much for the company, but for themselves to establish the next chapter of their lives and position themselves as an authority. We're all experts. Nobody's had your wins or your learning opportunities along the way. But we want to elevate you to become authorities in your field. And those authority, when you want to become an authority, then more doors are going to open. I love that. Okay, so I want to move into your six P's. So your six P's are the most important factors to consider when evaluating and preparing your business for sale. And it's really the engine of your business. It's the cylinders because they drive value. And many businesses don't operate on all cylinders. Instead, they're sluggish, they waste fuel, and they break down. So you can avoid this inefficiency by tuning up your business and using the six P's method. So uh, the six P's are people, product, process, proprietary, patrons, and profit. I'd love to talk about product. You guys talk about niche when you talk about products, and, and really it's all about if your product has a niche. So what's the importance of having a product with a niche, and um, how do we know if we're in a niche that has staying power? Well, that's a very good question. And part of that is being on top of what's happening in your industry and staying relevant and staying innovative. You may be innovative this year, but everybody else, you know, goes right past you. If you think of Polaroid, right, they did not stay innovative, so they lost their company. Um, so it's really important to continue driving at the, on the cutting edge of what you're doing. And on a product, if you think about your product, you may be in love with your product, but if you have someone else from the outside, they can come in and they can see how that product can be um, fine-tuned into a different niche or a different industry. And so instead of one product, you end up with three products. But it's really an, uh, important to understand you clearly 
clearly define what is your product, who's the target market, that's going to help you find potential purchasers, have you protected that product, have you leveraged it, and how can you build the brand on that product, but also how are you keeping it relevant and keeping it cutting edge. Mm, That was so good. So I'd also like to talk about patrons because I thought this one was really interesting. You guys are basically saying that your client base needs to be diversified. Can you talk about the risk of having too much concentration in one type of client base? Well, certainly. I mean, I... I had a client a few years ago, they came in and they had incredible sales, you know, they were over 50 million, but 30 million of that 50 was coming from one client. So that's not, unless that's not going to be attractive for a a purchaser, that's high risk, unless they want access to that client and they can't get it any other way. And so it's really important for you to review your your database. And this is the same thing that I, I shared just a moment ago. You may not have been focused on building your database and you think you're, you know, you're hot stuff because you got a million followers on Instagram. The problem is Instagram, as many of us, you know, people experience, Facebook and Instagram can turn you off and you have, you lose access. So it's really important to use those social media platforms as a lead generation tool, but to invite them and encourage them to come into your database because your patrons are your lifelong blood. And so as a business, are you just selling, making transactions, or are you serving your customers and therefore creating a lifetime relationship with those customers? So from a outside perspective, you want to make sure you don't have high concentration in one or two clients if you definitely want to sell, because what happens if one of those clients goes belly up? The ripple effect is going to hurt you. I try to keep my my mentoring, mentoring clients to not have any customer more than 20 to 25% of their revenue so that you have the ability to bounce back. But In addition, you want to continue to nurture and know what that customer journey is. People, Some people call it funnels. Is it really a customer journey? And that's intellectual property. That's an intangible asset of how you're nurturing the nurturing sequence, how you're keeping people involved and growing. But understanding the demographics is essential. Somebody wants to come in and buy you, you and they say, well, tell us about your customer. Well, everybody's our customer. That doesn't go over well. You need to show based on the data. This is a world of data, not just um, sales techniques. Your data will tell your potential buyer where are your customers coming from, what niches, what age. That helps them have a better idea of how that your company will work into their company. So the other P I want to talk about is profits, because I think this is a really important one. A lot of people think they can sell their business based on the revenue they're generating, but it's really all about profits. So can you explain that to us? Well, certainly. And and one of the things that Michelle and I talk about in the book is people really do just kind of focus on products and profits. And when your profits aren't where they need to be, it's usually an indication that you're not paying attention to all the other P's. 
because you probably have not positioned yourself correctly with um, the people on your team. You probably don't have the right processes. You probably don't have the right proprietary protection, and therefore it's impacting your profits. And so when your profits are down, you have to find out and diagnose through a SWOT analysis where what uh, what are we not doing within the structure of the business to be able to scale and have that profit go up. You know, many times companies will, in, in today's world, all right, so people, many big companies may be selling for millions and billions of dollars and they're, they're, they don't have any profit. But what they offer is forward-looking technology. What they offer is a tremendous, huge database of patrons. And so the value is there even though they're not generating cash flow today. Mm, so you can still sell high if you've got valuation in other areas that aren't necessarily profit. So it's really all all these different factors, right? It's not just one thing, which is what we're learning about all today. So the next thing I want to talk about is identifying buyers. So this is step three in your STGPS exit model. It's to identify who your buyers will be. And uh, in the same way that business owners invest their money and energy and resources to target their ideal customer, you have to do the same thing when it comes to selling. You need to cater to your buyer's needs. So Sharon, I'd love to hear from you about why we need to know who our ideal buyers are when we're building our business and why we need to build the business to suit those buyers' uh, needs when we want to exit rich. Well, this is so vitally important, you know, because what happens is you may determine you want to sell your company and an, uh, all of a sudden a competitor comes in and tells you they want to buy you. And if you don't take the right procedures to protect your your property, your intellectual property and your processes, they may just be on a fishing expedition. So you want to know if they're serious, if they're qualified buyers. And there's different types of buyers. There's like a first-time buyer, somebody's looking to buy something to be their very first business. That's you know somebody you're going to have to educate them related to your business. You want to make sure that they're qualified to purchase because it can take a lot of time and energy to go through the due diligence process. So you want to have a procedure to be able to pre-qualify those potential buyers. And then you also, you know, you have opportunity for, Buyers who are trying to bolster their position within the industry. And that's something that is really important to understand how you add, what the piece of the puzzle is that you can add to what they already do. You can have strategic buyers. I mentioned this earlier, somebody that's in a geographic location um, that doesn't have a presence in your geographic location. And so that's a strategic buyer. And then you have companies that want to buy you and put you under because you are a competition. So you want to make sure in those cases that you don't have long-term payouts because you may end up being sitting there with nothing in the future. So it's really important to understand who the buyer is, what their intent is, and what the intention, the impact can be for you. That's why it's so important to have a business broker or to have a mentor to help you through that process. Yeah, and, I, and it goes back to kind of understanding your plan and and why you're exiting rich and what your end game is. Because, for example, if you're trying to build a legacy, you don't want to sell to a competitor who's just trying to put you out of business because then your legacy is gone. That's correct. And it's so important to know. We don't know what we don't know. And so if you're not in the business of buying and selling 
product companies, then you probably need to bring in somebody who is so that they can support you and go through the right right questions. Because it, as I said, it's one of the most time-consuming things that you can do is try and sell your business. When we sold the talking book company, I had six or seven, all the major toy companies and several major publishing companies um, that we did due diligence with all of them. And it was exceptionally time-consuming. I had to bring in an entire team to work with them to go through the process and the financials and the forward-thinking models so that we could determine who, you know, which one would be best suited to purchase us. And that's something that you want to bring in that expertise to make your decision more sound. Yeah. And could you explain what happens when a business buys you out, but then they keep you as management. Um, I feel like a lot of people don't realize that somebody can buy your business, but they'll, they may keep you as CEO of your business. Yes, um, that. And then we also probably should mention stock versus asset sales. Many times there needs to be the first P people in the, in the 6P process, the people on your team, your management team, a potential suitor or purchaser is going to want to know what the employee agreements are with the top executive level people. They don't want to buy it and then have everybody leave. So they want to have the, some sort of continuity in most cases. And if you are a very well-known CEO of the company or founder, they may want you to stick around for a couple of years for that transition. They may even put provisions within the sales document. They can say, you know, we this is this is your earnout. I'm going to give you this price up front for the business, and then you're going to be able to, if you can continue keeping the revenues growing for the next couple of years, you get a piece of that. That happens a lot of times, so that there's a best maintain continuity in the in the transfer of ownership in the company. And I know you mentioned you just you wanted to kind of break down the difference between I didn't catch it like a stock valuation versus something. Uh, what did you want to mention at the end there? Yeah, when you sell your company, you can sell the stock. All right, so that the that basically the purchaser buys the entire entity. Many times, and and quite frankly, most times in the in smaller businesses the purchaser is going to come in and just buy the assets. They don't want to buy your liabilities. They don't want to they don't want to buy the skeletons in the closet. And so an asset purchase is a little different, but it's still a way to exit your company. And so um, that's again very important to have the right people on your team to help guide you through that process. This is awesome. I think this is a conversation that I feel like not too many people are having. I've had maybe 300 episodes on my show. We've never talked about exit strategy, but we talk so much about entrepreneurship. So I'm very happy we're having this conversation. I guess my next question is about doing research to find out who our perfect potential buyers could be. Because like you said, we really need to start to build our business to suit those buyers. So what's the type of research we should be doing to try to find those potential buyers? Well, that's it's a multi-answer to that question because hopefully if you are within a business that you are successful and you are also involved in your industry associations so that you would be have your ear to the ground and find out uh, similar companies to yours that have sold and who the potential buyers were. And um, they would be kind of almost a first run to see if they are looking at expanding further because they've established the system of purchasing other companies. Um, sometimes as a strategic buyer, as I said before, one of the things you don't want to do is tell the world you want to sell your company. 
because what all of a sudden your employees are going to start getting fearful and they're going to run away. So you want to keep it highly confidential. Even through the process, you want to go through with potential suitors. You, um, it's very important that you understand the, 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 the need for confidentiality is high to protect your ongoing business. Your customers may may flip out. They find out you're trying to sell a business. You may lose your customers. And that's something that, is, that people, loose lips sink ships. We've heard that phrase. Well, that's what happens in, when you're thinking about buying. Same in real estate. If you have, a, you, know, you have a tenant and piece of property and you decide you want to sell the property, you need to make sure you understand what the terms of the the leases on that property. But more importantly, when you own a company, you've got strategic people in place, your CFO deciding, you know, they're, they, they're going to need to be involved because you need to get financials. And so it's really important to have those conversations and give them incentives to stay through the entire process so that they don't leave. And same thing with a um, COO, chief operating officer, strategic positions need to be enticed to stay through the process so that they don't cause disruption within the company when you're in the process of selling. Mm, That's such a good point that I think a lot of people don't think about is the fact that these people are thinking, well, I'm going to lose my job. So what's the point of sticking this through? And they may try to sabotage it. So that's a really, really great point. So I'd love to understand the use case of a business selling to multiple buyers. Can you give us an example of that? Well, certainly. So if you have a business that has different products in different industries, you may have multiple buyers. And that's why it's so important to be very careful about your financial documents and understand and your accounting so that if you have different divisions, those divisions can easily be separated so that a potential suitor can see the profit or loss of that division. You know, a company... When we had the talking book industry, we had a division of our company that was did sheet music, completely different world, completely different industry. And so the, the, the division of the company of the sheet music was sold to one purchaser while the talking book portion of the company was sold to someone else. And so we, you have to be able to delineate what the profit and loss for each of those divisions are. And it, it happens quite often. Yeah, that it, it, it really does. So... I want to talk about determining time frame. Uh, step four in the model is determining time frame, and timing is everything. But I kind of think that timing is relative in most instances. So, can you talk about the right time to exit a business, in your opinion? Well, there's different aspects of, of doing the timing. The timing, um, obviously, you want to be able to sell while your b- business is at the highest valuation. Um, many times people wait until they're on the downward trend, and that's something that is very difficult. But it's also, you you definitely don't want to string out a potential process of a purchaser for you know a year because that just drains your resources, it drains your energy, and it drains your optimism. And so it's very important to set a time frame with your attorneys, with the people that are working with you on how to process through these. If you have multiple suitors, you understand what the time frame is to get back to them. But as far as timing, sometimes you, you, know, you get an offer to sell your business that you weren't expecting. And that's that is always good news. Sometimes it's a surprise. And so you have to sit back and say, is this the timing that's correct? Obviously, when you're looking at your 
personal life outside the business? Where are you financially? Where are you in estate planning? Where are you in running the business? Are you ready to sell? So those things are all, it kind of it connects with the first one. What's your vision? What do you want? But I, I'm always of the mind that if somebody's interested, I'm always going to listen and see, because that helps me understand how my business is being viewed from third parties. It's very, very good information. It also tells me things that I might need to strengthen, things that I might want to emphasize more. Businesses are successful because they solve problems and serve needs. And what greater feedback can you get from a potential suitor about why they want to buy you? It elevates your your respect for yourself and for your company, and you can highlight the value that your company provides. And so timing is very important, but timing is totally subjective. If you try and force timing to be objective and you're trying to force buyers and sellers to come together, it usually doesn't work out very well. But you want to at least encourage a timeline of expectation so that both parties can know what they're getting into. Yeah. And I I think this really does go back to planning because if you plan to sell, you're more likely, I think, to sell when things are going well rather than like when things are desperate, right? And you're, you're more likely to sell at the maximum price when you have that in mind and you don't just wait until there's nothing else or you want to retire or there's declining revenues or something like that. Well, and you will find that if you have a successful company, people in your industry are going to recognize that you're successful and your phone's going to start ringing when people see the opportunity to potentially purchase what you have in your success. Um, There's no greater compliment. And that's something that uh, may trigger a sale prior to what your plans were, or it may very well make you realize that there's so much more for you to do. You're just getting started. Yeah. So I want to jump back to valuation really quick because I know part of that STGPS exit model is to know your current valuation. How often should we be re-evaluating the valuation of our company? Well, that and that's exactly what Michelle Seller Tucker's company does. The Seller Tucker Group does valuations for people so that you get it a, it's just like when you need an appraisal for a house, when you're buying a house or you're selling a house. Your business, based on your industry, they will look at other businesses within your industry, within your status, the size of your revenue, the systems. They'll come in and analyze your business from the top down. And it's, it's probably a good thing to do if you're thinking about Selling, it might be a good thing to have a bit of valuation review done so that you could, they helps you identify your weak spots so that you can get dressed up for the party and make sure you understand what things that maybe some agreements that need to be strengthened. For instance, one of the things Michelle and I always talk about, she had a client that was thought they were going to sell for millions of dollars. But then um, when the company that wanted to buy them came in and started looking through the documents, all of their contracts with their customers clearly stated they were non-transferable. And so that valuation went from, let's say, 70 million to 10 million because all of those contracts had to be renegotiated. Now, luckily, she'd come in and she identified that. So they were able to go back through all those clients and get those contracts adjusted so that the company could sell at the price it wanted to. 
Oh, that's such a great example. All right. So we're going to move it to Q&A in a bit. If you guys are in the audience and you want to ask a question to Sharon Lecter, please raise your hand. We'll bring you up on stage. And while we're getting some hands raised here, I did want to ask one last question. And that was about the organizational structure for exiting your business. I've been talking about like how I want to sell my business. And I have a people in business who keep telling me I need a board of directors and a board of advisors, but I thought that was only for IPOs. So when it comes to the private sale of a business, is there some sort of organizational structure that you absolutely need or does it not matter? Well, I absolutely believe that every business should have a board of advisors. An advisory board gives you the a, a higher reputation. So a potential purchaser is going to see that you're bringing in the advice of people that are well-respected within the industry. To have an actual corporate board of directors is wonderful, but it also provides, you know, there's a lot of liability to those directors. So you have to make sure you're big enough to justify paying them or covering um, E&O insurance for them. So a corporate board of directors, they have a fiduciary responsibility. So that's much, a much higher commitment on their part, but an advisory board of directors typically, and sometimes they get paid, but they're there to support you, to bring their expertise, to help you basically steer around pitfalls and then also open doors of opportunity for you. We'll be right back after a quick break from our sponsors. Young and profiters, we are all making money, but is your money hustling for you? Meaning, are you investing? Putting your savings in the bank is just doing you a total disservice. You got to beat inflation. I've been investing heavily for years. I've got an E-Trade account. I've got a Robinhood account. And it used to be such a pain to manage all of my accounts. I'd hop from platform to platform. I'd always forget my Fidelity password. And then I have to reset my password. I knew that needed to change because I need to keep track of all my stuff. Everything got better once I started using Yahoo Finance, the sponsor of today's episode. You can securely link up all of your investment accounts in Yahoo Finance for one unified view of your wealth. They've got stock analyst ratings. They have independent research. I can customize charts and choose what metrics I want to display for all my stocks so I can make the best decisions. I can even dig into financial statements and balance sheets of the companies that I'm curious about. Whether you're a seasoned investor or looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Hey, YapFam, starting my LinkedIn Secrets Masterclass was one of the best things I've ever done for my business. I didn't have to waste time figuring out all the nuts and bolts of setting up a website that had everything I needed, like a way to buy my course subscription offerings, chat functionality, and so on, because it was super easy with Shopify. (coughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, whether you're selling your first product, finally taking your side hustle full-time, or making half a million dollars from your masterclass like me. And it doesn't matter if you're selling digital products or vegan cosmetics. Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Shopify's got you covered as you scale. Stop those online window shoppers in their tracks and turn them into loyal customers with the internet's best converting checkout. 
I'm talking 36% better on average compared to other options out there. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. From huge shoe brands like Allbirds to vegan cosmetic brands like Thrive Cosmetics. Actually, back on episode 253, I interviewed the CEO and founder of Thrive Cosmetics, Carissa Bodnar, and she told me about how she set up her store with Shopify and it was so plug and play, her store exploded right away. Even for a makeup artist type girl with no coding skills, it was easy for her to open up a shop and start her dream job as an entrepreneur. That was nearly a decade ago. And now it's even easier to sell more with less thanks to AI tools like Shopify Magic. And you never have to worry about figuring it out on your own. Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. So you can focus on the important stuff, the stuff you like to do. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash profiting. And that's all lowercase. If you want to start that side hustle you've always dreamed of, if you want to start that business you can't stop thinking about, if you have a great idea, what are you waiting for? Start your store on Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash profiting now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Again, that's shopify.com slash profiting. Shopify.com slash profiting for $1 per month trial period. Again, that's shopify.com slash profiting. So we're going to move it along to Q&A. I know that Dimple on stage, my podcaster friend, has a question for you. So Dimple, what's your question for Sharon? Thank you so much, Hala. Hi, Sharon. Great to see you. Hi, everyone. I'm Dimple. I'm the host of the Mesmerizing Marketing Podcast. And one of the things that I'm noticing lately is when I'm working with my clients, we have been talking a lot about you know, positioning their law firm or positioning their company so that it becomes an asset that they can sell down the road and they can retire and building up their personal brand and just positioning it where it's not just a law firm that they open and they close, but they can sell it down the road. So when it comes to that, I also know that you annotated one of my favorite books, Outwitting the Devil by Napoleon Hill. So what I wanted to know is, is there a important takeaway or lesson from that book that you can apply to someone who is positioning their business, you know, to sell it? And then they have to deal with, like, let's say competitors, they have to deal with other people that maybe they're not really experienced in dealing with. Like, what's a great takeaway from outwitting the devil that you think would be useful to someone who is not experienced in selling and buying companies, but this is their first go at it? Well, thank you, Jumple. Nice to meet you. And I appreciate that question. I mean, the the essence of outwitting the devil is how to get through your, get out of your own way and how to get past the fear to achieve the success that you deserve. And so when you're looking at establishing a company as a leader in your industry, it's very important to, to get out of your own way and to establish your reputation. And so in Outwitting the Devil, we talk about definiteness to purpose, having a focus on what you want. What is your end result? Just the same thing as an exit rich. What is your plan? And then mastery over self is a second one, which means focus, focus, focus on establishing good habits and always building and moving towards the future. 
Third one is learning from adversity. So understanding that in business, you're going to have ups and downs and make sure that you learn from them. And you have people that are on your advisory board or mentors that help steer you around the pitfalls. And then this is controlling the environment. And when you talk about lawyers or accountants, those are personal service companies. And so they're very hard to sell without the individual unless you build them so that they have a lot of legs. You have a lot of people in it, a lot of customers that are that are loyal. So that you build that track record and that environment is what is your reputation? What's that power of association? Are you bringing in um, the leading thought leaders in that particular field? My husband was considered a thought leader in intellectual property, one of the top licensing attorneys in the world. And so he established that reputation, which helped drive the value of anything that he was part of. And then understanding the, the controlling your time. All right. So if you're building your law practice, you need to say, okay, how much time am I still, I need to be the rainmaker bringing in clients. I need to have time where I'm managing and overseeing, but let me bring in somebody else who's a better manager than I am so I can free up that time. And now I'm looking at potentially building this as an exit. So what's the best way I can provide an exit is bring in other named partners, bring in additional offices around the world. Those, you know, what is the strategy to create and build the valuation and the foundation of that or that company so that it is more attractive to a potential buyer? Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thanks, Dimple. Great question. And I'm going to pass it over to Dragon, who has a question. Hey, Sharon. How are you, my friend? Fantastic. Wonderful to hear from you. I just came up with a new one. I said, every time I hear Sharon Lecter speak, I exit rich. And also I looked up, I I refer to Sharon. Sharon's just an amazing individual. And I've I've had the opportunity of sharing a stage with her and also seeing her speak a bunch of times. And I refer to her that as the nightingale of empowering humans to greatness in mindset and financial freedom. I looked up nightingale and it says, Sharon, nightingale after Florence Nightingale is a woman who is very kind to someone who is ill. So I would say the world is pretty ill when it comes to finances. So I think it's fitting. Well, I can't tell you how much it meant to me when I first heard you say that. And um, it has just, uh, it still it still makes me walk a little taller. That's why I appreciate that. <laughs> you should, you deserve it. So I have a question. It's such a fascinating frontier right now. And you're just like, a, you're like a sommelier of finance and, you know, like a historian of sorts too. And I've just read all your books and I just love every, I love the way your brain works. I would love to know, what your thoughts are, you know, we're talking about exiting rich, but you're really letting people know that like, even when you're starting a business, you should be thinking about this. But here we are in this new frontier with cryptocurrency and NFTs and all that stuff. I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, thank you, Dragon. I think um, same thing with cryptocurrency or NFTs. What is your exit strategy? It's the same, you know, I, I collect loose jewels, right? And that's something that my intent, I, wherever I travel, is I bring back whatever the jewels are in that country as part of my collection. And it's not something that generates any cash flow, but it's for me, It's a, it, my plan is that I'm going to have this collection of fine gems that I can leave to my children. And so 
this is the same thing. What is your strategy in, in NFTs? All right. Are you just playing? If so, make sure you're using money that you can, that you can lose because you're, you need to, whether it's crypto or NFT, you've got to become a student of what you're doing, not driven by drama and emotion, but driven by data. Very hard because our world as humans, we are driven by drama and by social media and get in and the emotions get high and the FOMO and um, cryptocurrency is here to stay, but it is still going to be a roller coaster ride. And so it's really important to understand that you are taking a risk if you are not educating yourself along the way, getting the data to lessen the drama. Yeah, and what's, and what's fascinating, that's so good. What's fascinating about it is we're in this new frontier where people are kind of like skipping the whole working hard thing and, you know, gaining access to potentially the first hill or valley of their roller coaster, but, but sometimes hitting it big. So do you, do you see a lot of turmoil coming from them? Because, you know, the drama is, is that is, you know, another way of saying that is the hype, you know, every, the urgency that's created and you're going to miss out on this. Just as, as a historian and, you know, just looking into the future, perhaps what's your prediction of what's going to happen? Well, I just say bless their souls that they've been successful and may, may they be smart enough to reinvest their profits in a position that they can continue living the life they want to. But I think it's really, I mean, there's a, there was a post on social media that came across today, which you just triggered. One was, uh, you know, somebody's in their Ferrari investing in cryptocurrency today, and then next year they're riding the bus. So it's, are you doing, are you educating yourself? Are you paying attention to what you're doing? Taking money off the table so that you're still playing with house money is a really safe thing to do. When you get a great big gain, pull out part of your initial investment so that you are still even with where you started and that most people don't do that. They, they want to take it. And again, the risk factor is very different if you're young and just getting started or whether you're in your 60s and you have kids and family. So, Every individual is different. My question is always, can you go to sleep at night? Are you going to toss and turn? Are you worried about uh, you know, a financial crash? The financial um, economy right now is a roller coaster, and you need to, to do whatever you can to position yourself so that you don't lose everything. But as I said, crypto is here to stay. What it's going to look like next year or in five years you need to stay on top of it and educate yourself. And yes, there are a lot of young people that have made a lot of money. Good for them. I hope that they understand the value of that wealth and the need to to share that and be generous and be grateful for the opportunities. It's like, you know, lottery winners that end up losing everything within five years because they didn't educate themselves and they became targets. You know, that they had, I, I talk about loud money versus quiet money. And when you have loud money, um, you attract a lot of new friends and you get very emotional about your wealth. And it's real easy to spend extra zeros because you have so much. The question is, will you still have it in five to 10 years? And are you doing what you need to to make sure you deploy it and let it grow? That's why I'm a proponent, along with Grant, of real estate investing, because it's something that can continue supporting you on a monthly cash flow basis. So, 
So good. So good. Thanks, Sharon. And, and Hala, amazing questions and interview. Thanks. Thank you, Jack. And thank you, Sharon. Dropping bombs right now. It's getting juicy at the end of the show. I really enjoyed that response. And Dragon, thanks for that great question. We're going to move it along. We've got a couple of attendees here in the session who want to ask a question. Kate, what is your question for Sharon today? Hi, yes. First of all, I just wanted to thank you, Sharon and Holla, for such a, a valuable conversation so far. So my question is, you know, Sharon, you've mentioned throughout tonight's conversation, every individual is is different. Every business is different. But is there ever a, a point where it becomes too late to sell your business? Well, that's a great question, Kate. And I th- obviously, every situation is unique. It's never too late to sell your business if you can find a buyer interested in purchasing it. You know, a lot of times people wait so long that they have been made obsolete and their products are obsolete. And that's when it's very difficult to find anybody to purchase it. But then you have to look at it. Sometimes you have to change the lenses and reframe. You may have an obsolete product, but you may have a very large database. And so what you potentially can sell is the your client list as opposed to your entire company. Somebody may be willing to pay you for that. But again, you have to check the buyers, figure out which buyers are appropriate and what you have to sell. And, you know, the vast majority of people in the human do, I think, probably sell at the wrong time. They, they don't sell soon enough. But at the same time, um, if you've had the wealth coming in during that time, then maybe that was the right decision. Amazing. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks, Kate. Great question. Uh, So we're going to move this along here. And if you're in the audience and you have a question, raise your hand. Megan, you're up next. How can Sharon help you today? Good evening, Miss Sharon. Hello, my dear. How are you? I'm well, and I was so pleased to see you here. I speak about you probably every day. And today I was uh, recording a Unique Leaders Live. And I think you know I ask the same question at the end, which is your success formula. And I I share what it is and a little history of Three Feet from Gold, your book with Greg Reed. But I always ask the individual, what is their passion and what is their talent? I thought maybe it would be interesting for um, the guests here to hear your success formula, but I would love to hear what your passion and your talent is, Sharon. Well, thank you, my dear Megan. I appreciate you and um, thrilled that you're here with us tonight. Uh, The Personal Success Equation, which was released in my first book with the Napoleon Hill Foundation, is a formula that doesn't have numbers in it, so don't freak out. But it's P plus T, your passion plus your talent. Now, my passion came from being mad that we weren't teaching kids about money in school. My talent was many years, more than I want to admit, as a CPA and many years in publishing. And so we normally combine that, your passion and your talent, and we normally stop there thinking we have to do everything on our own. But true success, and you've heard this through my comments tonight about Exit Rich Book, is through the power of association, having the right people on your team, having people that are strong where you are weak, having the right mentors, having the right strategic partners that can help you leverage your business and help leverage your success. And then times A for taking action. How many times do you know what you're supposed to do? You just don't do it. 
you know, it happens to all of us. And so your passion and your talent times the right association times taking the right action. And then it's all based on having faith, plus F for faith. Faith in yourself, faith in what you're doing, faith that is needed and necessary, faith that you will succeed. And in most cases, that F is actually fear. It holds people back. They self-sabotage. They prevent themselves from taking the action they need. They're afraid to make new associations. And when I start working with a new client, to which Megan can attest, I always walk through that formula with them, personal success equation, because it's usually the power of association and the faith in themselves that need the most work. And they go hand in hand, because when you have the right people around you and you have a bad day, they're not going to let you stay down. They're going to pull you up. So your passion and your talent, I want each of you to think about this. What is your passion? What's your talent? Who do you have in your world? Who are you listening to? What mentor do you have? Do you have a mentor, not just a coach, a coach keeps you accountable, but a mentor actually opens doors for you. They help steer you around those pitfalls. They've been where you want to go. Their success can rub off. So your passion, your talent times the right associations by taking the right actions and having confidence in yourself. That's how you accelerate your success. It happens every single time. Every success story, you can look at it and dissect it. Passion, talent, association, action, and faith. And all of you can, if you go to personalsuccessequation.com, personalsuccessequation.com, I have a free download that you can just exercise book that takes you through determining the things that you can do to strengthen your personal success equation. But thank you, Megan. Thank you, Sharon. And I actually was going to message you and I saw you on Clubhouse this evening with Hala. So I did send you a little message in the back channel. So thank you so much. Thank you, Megan. Thanks, Megan. I appreciate you attending and having the courage to ask your question. And we're going to move it to Cameron, who is the last question of the night. How can we help you? Yes. Hi. So I've seen a bit about your exit model and formula and obviously heard about it tonight. So in your exit model, step five is knowing why. So my question is, why is it important to determine your why? for wanting to sell your business, as well as knowing the price you want in the right time frame? Well, part of it is uh, knowing your why is also, you know, it ties right back into the number one. What is it, uh, you know, what's your, your vision? But your why is what do you want out of life? Do you want to be tied to your business forever? You know, what is your why? What do you want your life to look like? And so that's all part of determining your future. Now, a lot of the why is also have you tied your ego to your business? Can you separate yourself from your business? You know, my husband was an intellectual property attorney for many, many years, partner, and he still is, actually, he still is, but he was a partner in major law firms. And it was his identity when he decided to retire, take a step back from the firm. It, it was a rough road for him because it's like he was no longer in the corner office. He no longer had 15 people at his beck and call every second of every day. And so it was a huge adjustment. But at the same time, it allowed him to pursue his why. We own a ranch, Cherry Creek Lodge here in Arizona. And so people today, when they ask him what, what he does, he says he's a cowboy. Now, he's still an intellectual property, a famous intellectual property attorney. He still works for companies to help them strategize and build their licensing strategy. 
but his ego is no longer tied to that that definition and he loves the ranch so he basically will tell you he's a cowboy and that's the why his why is not to go to the office every day his why is to live own the property and 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 be able to do what he wants to with each every every moment of every day of his life having that power of choice and so in order to have that why that helps drive you to implement the elements of the exit rich book and put it together one of the things um, this weekend, for those of you that are want to come to Miami, I'm speaking with Elena Cardona, 10X Ladies, on um, Friday and Saturday. And our topic is real. My topic is why not? You know, so many women particularly are afraid. They don't want to take the risk. And so we want to give you the reason, the 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 will and the desire and the energy to really take the leap to create the life you deserve. And that's something that, that's that why. What, you know, what do you want your life to look like? Not your business. What do you want your life to look like? And how can your business be used as a method to create the life that you want? Thank you, Cameron. Thank you. Thank you. That was a great way to end the night. Thank you so much, Sharon. This was an insightful conversation. Thank you, Dragon, for connecting us. And Sharon, I'd love for you to share where our listeners can learn more about you. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Yes, you can follow. Um, I, certainly in my bio on Clubhouse, I have a bunch of the particulars, but um, you can go to 10xladies.com forward slash Sharon if you want to join us this weekend. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. My website is SharonLector.com. And if you want to reach out to me and I'll see how many of you actually do this by email, info at SharonLector.com. I will see them. And we want to support you. My my drive, my why, let's talk about my why. My why is still that I am fed by having people find that one thing they can do to create a better life for themselves. And if I can do that for any of you, it would be my joy and would be my purpose in life to support you creating the greatest success possible. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. For everybody who tuned in live, I hope it was enjoyable and you enjoyed the conversation. And with that, we're going to close out the room. Thanks, everybody. And we'll see you on the next Yap Live. Thanks, Sharon. Thank you, Thank you so much. <laughs>